Now turn with me tonight in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. I appreciate Scott reading earlier from the book of Revelation. Wow. Aside from the Gospels, I think the best book to turn to to see the Lord Jesus is the book of Revelation. As long as you're looking for Jesus Christ and not the Antichrist while you're there. Revelation chapter 6, let's read verses 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we feel that we're on holy ground when we come to a passage like this. Father, we see you high and lifted up. We see your Son, the risen Lamb, sharing that same throne, Father, with all rule and authority given to him. Father, we see every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that he is Lord. And Father, we stand amazed in the presence of such a God, such a holy God, such a majestic God. And Father, we're in your presence tonight. Grip us with a sense of your holiness. Draw us in tonight, Father. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Is this the same Jesus that we've been looking at? Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's the same Jesus. Look again at the last two verses of that passage where every class of man will cry out, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? It's their wrath, Father and Son. I want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ, the precious Lamb of God, Jesus strong and kind, shares his Father's terrible wrath on sin the very same Jesus we've been looking at who reached out and touched untouchable lepers who had tender compassion on grieving people who would bounce little kids on his lap and bless them. One day he will be the worst nightmare of unrepentant sinners and they will face the wrath of the Lamb. 
When I was a kid back in Indiana, we raised sheep. I never saw the wrath of the lamb. One day this world will. And on that day, it will be shock and awe. The fear and horror pictured in this passage are so terrible that again, every, every category and class of human beings will cry out for the mountains to crush them rather than face it. What they don't realize is that death itself will not put an end to the wrath of the Lamb. It's just the beginning. We've been looking at the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's to show us that Jesus in his humanity, showed the glory of God. He displayed the character of God. You can look at Jesus and see what God the Father is like. We've, and we've done this specifically by looking at the emotional life of our Lord. We've seen that Jesus has the full range of emotions that we have. Actually, it's probably more correct to say we have the full range of emotions that he has. But his emotional responses were always holy. They were never sinful. They were always controlled by the Holy Spirit. When we see Jesus' emotions, we see a perfect pattern for our own emotions, and we also see a perfect picture of what God is like. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. It's that simple. And Jesus did not show us a different picture of God than what we see in the Old Testament. Jesus did not come to earth to announce that the wrathful God of the Old Testament had finally lightened up since he had a son. He didn't come to show us the softer, kinder side of God. Jesus affirmed the wrath of God. And that's a very, very good thing for us. Because if God can change between the Old and New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, then he isn't God. And it's a good thing that God is a God of wrath on sin because if he isn't a God of wrath on sin, then he isn't a holy God, he isn't a good God, and neither is he a loving God. Let me explain what I mean by reading a quote from A.W. Pink. He said this, Indifference to sin is a moral blemish, and he who hates it not is a moral leper. How could he, who is the sum of all excellencies, look with equal satisfaction upon virtue and vice, wisdom and folly? How could he, who is infinitely holy, disregard sin and refuse to manifest his severity toward it? How could he, who delights only in that which is pure and lovely, not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? The very nature of God makes hell as real a necessity as heaven. If God is love, he has to hate what's opposed to his love. You and I are commanded to do the same. Romans 12, 9 says what? Abhor what is evil, hold fast, cling to what is good. Abhor, shrink back, hate what is evil. We have to do that in order to cling to what is good. It's impossible for us to truly love what is good unless we hate what is contrary to it. And brothers and sisters, I would say this. If something makes my heavenly father angry, I do not want to be complacent and indifferent. Amen? 
I'll give you the punchline to this message right up front. The more you grasp how intensely God hates all of your sins, the more you will cherish his forgiveness of those sins. The greater his wrath, the greater his mercy when he delivers us from that wrath. If all your sins and mine deserves is a slap on the wrist, big deal. But if your sins are against a holy, holy, holy God who has an infinite burning anger against every single one of your sins, and if even one of those sins equals the breaking of the entire law of God, as James 2.10 says, and if the just penalty for even one sin is eternal, indescribable torment and pain, and if you are utterly helpless to do anything to avoid or escape or mitigate that punishment, then what does it mean to you that God has removed all of your sins as far as the east is from the west? Wow. And he put them all on his son. Beyond that, he's adopted you as his child, put the robe of his son, the robe of his righteousness on you, given you his word, his Holy Spirit, put you in the body of Christ, and promised you an eternity of indescribable joy. When you grasp that, then it really means something when we read 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You have to breathe a sigh of relief when you hear those words. And don't you love God more? Even more. So this evening we want to take a closer look at the anger of Jesus because Jesus shared and Jesus showed his father's wrath on sin. So what made Jesus angry? Well, I want to look at some passages in the Gospels. Turn with me to Mark chapter 3. The first incident we're going to look at is Jesus' anger toward hard-hearted religious leaders. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Bunch of legalists. So that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The word for anger here is a Greek word, orge. Orge, it's usually translated as wrath. It's used over and over in the New Testament for the final wrath of God on sinners. It's the same word John the Baptist used when he said to the Pharisees, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The same word. Do you see this? 
What Jesus felt towards these hard-hearted religious leaders is what he will carry out when he returns to the earth in judgment. They were supposed to be shepherds of their people, but they were so callous, they were so hard-hearted, unfeeling, that they couldn't care less whether this brother of theirs was healed or not. All they wanted to do was play a word game and catch Jesus violating their traditions so they could have an excuse to kill him. They were so blinded by their sinful pride, they couldn't even say whether it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Mark says that Jesus swept the room with this angry look. Can you imagine that? I would never, ever want Jesus to look at me like that. And because of his blood shed for me, I know he never will look at me like that. But I'll tell you what, this causes me to think about the way I think and talk about other people at times, other Christians. I, I can see sometimes even other brothers and sisters as, a, as an obstacle to the ministry. They're, they're in the way, they're, they're interfering, they're obstructing. Standing in the way of where I think the church should be. But I read this passage and I say to myself, Jesus wouldn't be frustrated with them, but he might be with me for my self-centeredness. I want you to notice Mark says that he was also grieved at their hardness of heart grieved now this doesn't soften his anger it just means that it caused him pain and sorrow that men could be so lacking in compassion for others created in God's image second thing that brought out Jesus anger was hard-headed disciples hard-hearted religious leaders and hard-headed disciples turn to Mark 10 Mark 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them, rebuked the parents, apparently. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, the word that Mark uses here means to be very irritated, physically or mentally agitated, annoyed, like a teething child. Jesus was irritated with his disciples because they had a fleshly, earthly perspective. Not a heavenly one. They were pragmatists, right? Jesus was on a mission from God, so he couldn't possibly have time for little kids. They don't contribute anything to the kingdom of God. And here these parents were bringing their sweet little kids to Jesus to get blessed, and the disciples scolded the parents. Take these little ankle biters away. Jesus didn't come here for them. He's got business to do. How wrong they were, right? Jesus was angry. He rebuked them. Let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them. Don't obstruct them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11, 25 and 26. He said, Father, you've hidden these things, these deep spiritual things, from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. 
Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The disciples had the mistaken notion that the kingdom of God was all about power and status, strength. They still didn't understand that unless you come like a little child, you never even enter his kingdom. Wow. Kingdom values are the opposite of worldly values, always. Do we get it that our king puts a premium on childlike humility and complete dependence upon him, not on our strengths, not on our gifts, not on our abilities? If we don't get this, you know what we will do? Even in the church, we will begin to push the weak people aside to make room for those we think will be the strong leaders. And you know what might happen? We might end up with what we want, a bunch of strong-willed, pushy troublemakers. Would Jesus be indignant with the way we do ministry? We see the anger of Jesus come out in his stern warnings, and we see this throughout the Gospels. Mark says that the disciples scold the parents, and the same word is used of Jesus often. Matthew 8, 26. He said to them, to the disciples, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. He scolded them. Hush, hush. Matthew 16, 20. Then he strictly charged, same word, the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Mark 3, 12. He strictly ordered them not to make him known. Luke 4, 39, when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. The word means, means to sternly warn, even to threaten. It carries an emotion of strong displeasure and anger. In 2 Corinthians 2, 6, this word is used of the church in Corinth, exercising church discipline. One time, Peter used it on Jesus, and then Jesus used it on Peter. <laughs> Mark 8.32, Jesus was telling his disciples that he was about to be delivered over for crucifixion. And then Peter took him aside and began to scold him, to rebuke him. Mark 8.33, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus saw what Peter the influencer was, was doing to the rest of the, at the disciples. He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Do you think there was some emotion in his voice when he called Peter Satan? What is behind Jesus' anger in all these situations? He's angry at what sin has brought about in this world. Sin resulted in the curse, and the curse resulted in storms and fevers, human disobedience, human heart heartedness nature is not what it was created to be it's groaning and that made jesus groan but it also made him angry people aren't what they were created to be sin is behind hard-hearted religious leaders and hard-headed disciples and it was the sin that made jesus angry he groaned over what adam's sin had done and he deeply desired to bring in god's justice punish all sin and bring in new heaven and new earth we see the wrath of the Lamb in Jesus' fiery preaching. Wow. Jesus used severe language at times against people. Honestly, the anger and the emotion of the original words in the Gospels just don't come across in our 
translation. If anything, they're softened. He called unreceptive people dogs and hogs. He called the phony religious leaders hypocrites, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, a faithless and perverse generation, a wicked and adulterous generation, wolves, serpents, a brood of vipers, children of the devil. Sit down sometime and read Matthew 23 in one sitting. How many times Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, woe, woe, woe. That means cursing and damnation to you, hell to you. And right here is where we all need to be reminded. You and I are not Jesus. You and I are not Jesus. He had a right to use this kind of language because he was sinless, because he was omniscient and knew the hearts of all men, and because he was also perfectly loving. We strike out on all three accounts, don't we? I'll never forget this. I don't remember the year. Maybe some of you do. It was a Ligonier conference that I attended. I think it was in Florida. And there was a panel Q&A where they had the big speakers come up and they sit around on these cushy chairs and pass the mic back and forth. And, and they pat each other on the back and compliment each other. And it's all, you know, all this glad handing stuff. They, at this particular conference, um, and this was John Piper and... Uh, R.C. Sproul, and I think Paul Salehammer was there, and uh, Doug Wilson, some others. And uh, they've been talking a lot about um, seeker-friendly ministries and really just trashing the whole thing. So some girl timidly came up to the microphone, and, and she said, I want to address this to uh, Doug Wilson. She said, you, you, you claim to be so loving and, and kind and such a compassionate man, but you've just been trashing these other pastors. She says, it seems like there's a conflict, and he takes the mic, he says, I'm just doing what Jesus did. I'm just doing what Jesus did. He did this, and he gave it to people, and, and then I saw something at this conference, I've never seen at any other conference, John Piper takes the microphone, and he says, Doug, this is John Piper, the way he talks, Doug, he says, I appreciate your brilliance and your intelligence and the way you write. Doug, there's just one problem with what you're saying. You're not Jesus. <laughs> Whoa. Amen. Amen. And neither are you and neither am I. We need to be very careful. <clears throat> Let me give this advice, which I try to apply myself daily. Make a distinction. Direct your anger toward the sin, but pity toward the sinner. Pity. How is it? How is it that we can love our enemies? People we don't like. People we're inclined to really hate. Sometimes all we can do is have pity, sadness, sadness for them, right? I encourage you. Direct your anger toward the sin, but pity toward the sinner. Sadness instead of anger, that's what I pray for. Don't you desire their repentance, that they would find mercy and forgiveness? You do if you know God's mercy and forgiveness yourself. But let's go on. No one preached like Jesus. Uh, he preached about hell often, it's said, more often than he preached on heaven. And he was vivid. In Mark chapter 9, 43 through 48, he says this. 
And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In Luke 19, Jesus tells the story, the parable of a nobleman who goes off to receive a kingdom and then return. He gives each of his servants money and says, do business with this or occupy until I return. Get an investment. Get a return. Well, Jesus is that nobleman, right? He describes the citizens who hated him and said, we will not have this man to reign over us. And listen to this, Luke 19, 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Pretty harsh picture of Jesus' attitude toward his enemies. He's describing the wrath of the Lamb that we just read about in Revelation. It's not an exaggeration. It's not a literary metaphor. But I would remind us of this. Anytime Jesus gives such stern warnings, it's mercy. It's mercy because they're always directed to people who can hear, who still have a chance to repent. Amen? That's mercy. But I want to take you to an incident where Jesus' anger broke out and he gave a little foretaste of what's to come. Turn with me to John 2, John chapter 2, and this probably has come to your mind already. It's the clearing of the temple, which actually happened on two different occasions in the Gospels, at the beginning and at the end of Jesus' ministry. Let's look at the one that happened at the beginning in John 2, verses 13 through 17. Beginning in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus, strong and kind, went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now let's remember what's happening here. It's Passover in Jerusalem. There were hundreds of thousands of pilgrims in the city. The city was bursting with people. Imagine a city that was hosting the Olympics, and that's a pretty close parallel to what's happening in Jerusalem here. Months in advance, they begin preparing for the crowds. They clean the city up. They literally whitewash the tombs for the tourists because tourists meant money. If you've been to Israel, things haven't changed much in the last 2,000 years. It was like a, a giant flea market and a block party all in one. There were as many animals in Jerusalem as there were people because the tourists had to have animals to offer up for their Passover sacrifices. So try to imagine this massive crush of Middle Easterners on holiday seeing family and friends I haven't seen in months. These are not a quiet people, I would remind you. The noise, the smells in this place, it would have been just 
unbelievable. And then there were the money changers. In order to worship in the temple, a person had to pay a half shekel temple tax. But you had to pay it in the correct currency. Now, if you came from Sidon on the Mediterranean, your currency wasn't acceptable, no problem. You could go to a money changer, just like what you find at an international airport, right? You could exchange your money for the right currency for a markup of about 12%. And while the tourists were there, they would exchange even more money to spend on souvenirs and food while they were there. But that's just the beginning of the business side of this. If you brought your own sacrificial animal from home, it had to go through the priestly inspection to make sure it was without spot or blemish, was kosher. Well, there was a stiff fee or a bribe for the inspection, which had to be paid, again, in the proper currency. And lo and behold, most animals that people brought just didn't pass. No problem again, because the priests have animals that are already pre-stamped kosher. You were gouged again. You had no choice. You say, where were the Jewish leaders? They were behind the whole thing. The money changers were subcontractors who worked for the high priest, who at this time was Annas. This guy was filthy rich. He was corrupt as any mafioso boss. Passover wasn't a time of worship. It was like Black Friday for Judaism. It was a money machine. And the high priest and his cronies were the ones getting fat off of it. It really reminds us, if you know your church history, of how corrupt the Roman Catholic Church was at the time of the Reformation, how debauched, filthy rich the popes were from ripping off poor, superstitious people, selling them time out of purgatory, etc. That's what Judaism was like when Jesus and his disciples came to the Passover feast. And the worst part of it all was where all of this happened. This whole circus used to be outside of the temple area, but at this time, it had been moved inside into the court of the Gentiles, the only place where a God-seeking Gentile could go and supposedly see the true God, the one true living God, worshipped by his people. It was to be a place of evangelism. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus said this, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a robber's den. Let's try to picture what Jesus does next. He makes a whip, and he starts going through this whole area, driving out the animals, which you don't do without making some noise and a bit of commotion. I imagine Jesus doing this and the disciples are just kind of trailing after him, just watching this man. What is he doing? And the rumor starts to spread that something strange is going on. People begin running to see what's happening today. Everyone would have their cell phones, right? Recording the whole thing. He comes up to a money-changing table. He picks up a bowl with coins in it, pours it on the ground, Then he flips the table over. He goes to the next table, does the same thing. No one is even trying to stop him. The temple police, who are like the security guards, they don't even try to touch him. I think the people were absolutely stunned. They'd never in their lives seen one man doing something so brazen, so gutsy. He's pulling 
the plug on their whole financial operation. This is enough to get him killed on the spot. But Jesus is in charge here, and he says, get out. How dare you desecrate this place of worship? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The word zeal means hot jealousy. And Hebrews 10.27 uses the same word about God's wrath as a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury, zealous, of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Jesus was boiling mad. He was enraged. And it was because his father's name was being dishonored. He burned with a holy jealousy for his father's name and glory. What's the first thing that Jesus taught you and I to pray? Hallowed, holy be your name. There's a time and place for selling animals and souvenirs. This was not the time or place. Now let me ask you, when's the last time you were angry that the name of God or the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was being dishonored or used as profanity? That's something to get angry about if we're like Jesus. Well, what is the wrath of the Lamb mean to us? Number one, God should get bigger. God should get bigger. I want you to leave this weekend, this time we've had together, worshiping a bigger God. Remember J.B. Phillips, years ago, wrote a little book, Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. That's a problem with all of us, right? We need to see God in His immensity, His infinitude the God of Scripture, when you begin to grasp his burning, smoldering wrath on sin, some things happen. First of all, his holiness is magnified. He is so pure. God is so separate from anything sinful, shameful, or impure. Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And he isn't just separate from sin, but he hates it completely, infinitely, eternally. Someone said God's wrath is his holy, white-hot hatred of sin, the reaction and revulsion of his holy nature against all that's evil. He wouldn't be holy God without that, and would we really want God any other way? When you think about all the shady, compromising, unethical people we have in our government. Aren't you glad that our king is holy? And the measure of his wrath on sin is seen on the cross. Those who attempt to diminish in the minds of men the severity of God's wrath are accusing God the Father of crucifying his son for little. But Christ was crucified for much, much. Because God is holy. We, we used to sing a, a hymn at Middletown Bible Church. It's so good. And it has this stanza. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. That's how serious sin is 
that the only remedy for your sin and my sin is the lifeblood of the sinless Son of God. The price of satisfying God's wrath on your sin and mine was his own son's death. We diminish Christ, we diminish his glory when we diminish God's wrath. And we diminish God's holiness when we don't keep his holy wrath on sin constantly before our eyes. It should affect our worship, it should affect our walk, it should affect every minute of our lives before the face of this holy God. Let me give you another effect it has. To keep God's wrath on sin before us, his mercy is magnified. His mercy is magnified. Someone, Psalm 133 asks this question. If you, O Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, if you kept track, if you kept tally of iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one. Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Wow. Listen, any offense to an infinitely holy God is an infinite offense and an infinite dishonor. Therefore, an infinite punishment is deserved. But in Jesus Christ, this is just what you have escaped. Aren't you thankful for that? You remember when Jesus was having lunch with Simon the Pharisee? You remember that story? Luke chapter 7. And a prostitute came in and began washing Jesus' feet with her own hair. And Jesus told Simon that this woman loved him much. Why? Because she was forgiven much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. What he meant was he who thinks he's only forgiven little will love little. So if you want to love Jesus more, you know what the key, I used to preach a sermon called The Key to Loving Jesus More. What is it? See yourself as a greater sinner. See yourself as a, don't, don't excuse your sins, don't rationalize, but, 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 no, 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 no. See yourself as a greater sinner, and then you're going to see such a greater Savior. Get a bigger cross. Get a bigger cross. His mercy is magnified, but his patience with sinners is magnified when we understand God's wrath. It's amazing that God is slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness, when he hates sin so much. He is so patient with this wicked world, he's patient with you and me, amen? Paul tells us why in Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Why does he give us time to repent? He's patient to allow sinners the opportunity to repent and be saved. Peter said the same thing in 2 Peter 3.15. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Salvation. Why? Sometimes we wonder, why is God waiting? How much more can he take? I don't know how much more I can take. How can God take any more? Especially when you live in California, right? Not so bad when you live in Idaho, you know. How can God wait? How can he restrain himself? Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And 
Turn with me to Romans 9 for just a second here. I want you to look at a passage, a very difficult statement of Paul. Romans 9, 22 and 23. Romans 9. I hope you don't skip that chapter in your Bible. Romans 9, 22 and 23. And Paul writes this. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, what if he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, we would call these the reprobates, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, that's the elect, that's us, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. This is really incredible. God waits in his judgment to maximize his glory. He is patiently enduring the rebellion and evil of those he has chosen to harden for two reasons. Number one, to show off by contrast the glory of his mercy and grace to those who are equally sinful, but they're vessels of mercy. Second, to allow these vessels of wrath to accumulate more guilt for the day of judgment in order to display to us, to the vessels of mercy, his elect, the glory of his patience, power, justice, and wrath. In other words, on that day, we're just going to go, wow, look at our God. As much as he hates sin, he restrained himself just to show his patience to us so that we would give him more praise and more glory. Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, so evil is necessary in order to the highest happiness of the creature. What? Let me read again. Evil is necessary in order to the highest happiness of the creature and the completeness of that communication of God for which he made the world because the creature's happiness consists in the knowledge of God and the sense of his love. And if the knowledge of him be imperfect, the happiness of the creature must be proportionately imperfect. In other words, God's patience in restraining his wrath is for his glory and your enjoyment of that glory for all of eternity. Oh, the anger of Jesus that we see in the scriptures should magnify the God that we worship and it should cause us to hate sin more. Hate sin more. Hate it, hate it. The Father hates it, the Son hates it, the Spirit hates it. We should hate it. Don't glamorize it. Don't rationalize it. Try not to laugh at it and find humor in it. Don't excuse it. Don't live in peaceful coexistence with it. Hate it. Be ruthless in killing it. As old John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And begin the killing in your own thoughts. And brothers and sisters, never think for a moment that just because you're a Christian and your sins are all forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the west, that now they are any the less abhorrent to God. God has not changed his mind about sin. He still hates your sins utterly, infinitely, eternally. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why he ever lives to make intercession and why we need, we need and why we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Here's a question I've pondered. Is it theologically correct to think that when you or I sin today, we know what we're doing. 
and we choose to sin. That maybe Jesus had to suffer just a little more pain or endure more shame on the cross 2,000 years ago? I'll tell you my opinion. Tony can correct me when I leave. (laughs) I don't see any reason to think that he didn't. I don't see any reason to think that he didn't, but I want this thought to cause me to hate sin and stay as far away from it as I can. How could I willingly indulge in sin when I know what it cost my Jesus? Someone wrote this. Are you never sorrowful for causing the death of Jesus? For embracing that which killed your Savior? Think of what your sin cost the most pure, loving, and gracious one who ever lived. Consider how others are now in hell for the same sins you've committed. Remember that it is the eternal and perfect law of God himself that you have so willingly and repeatedly broken and disregarded. Behold the man your sins have pierced. Then... Remember that the life and death of Jesus saves from sin all who repent and believe. Oh, be driven closer to Christ by your sin. May your sin only serve to cause you to prize Christ more. Those who are forgiven much will love much. It's a healthy thing to get sad about your sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall what? Be comforted. Spurgeon wrote somewhere. He said, I'm never more happy than when I am kneeling at the cross, weeping over my sins. I'm never more happy. David knew that kind of comfort personally, didn't he? Let's close with David's words from the end of Psalm 2, Psalm 2, 11 and 12. He writes, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's bow our heads. And in your mind's eye, I want you to see the cross. There are three crosses, but I want you to look at the man in that middle cross. He's just like you. He is experiencing pain, the pain of crucifixion, having nails driven through his feet, his wrists, having a side pierced, the very same pain that you or I would experience if it happened to us. His bones are being pulled out of their sockets. He's dehydrated bleeding profusely. And now picture all of God's hatred, anger, and just indignation being poured out on him. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed because I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers, but he willingly, even joyfully, bore the sins of all who will ever trust in him so that they will never, never face that awful wrath. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him 
pardon me. Don't you love Jesus more? Heavenly Father, we, we just feel that when we talk about these things, we, we should take our shoes off. We're on holy ground. We are looking into things that the angels long to look into. They don't even understand the grace that you've given to sinful men and women through your Son. What a precious Savior. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, please take these weak words, use them to rekindle our first love for the Lord Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, what a precious gift to know that if you're a Christian here this evening, that you will never know, you will never taste the wrath and the anger of God, ever.